Hey folks, welcome to Hey Adora, your queer Shearer podcast. I'm Force Captain Meth, they them. And I'm Jenny, she her. And we're here to discuss season one, episode two, The Sword Part Two, or Sweet Baby Catra, don't you know she still loves you? Aww. The Sword Part 2 was written by Noel Stevenson, a.k.a. Your Queer God Now. <laughs> Storyboard by Polly Guo, uh, Mickey Quinn, Diane Ho, Joseph Scott, and Stephanie Stein. Directed by Jen Bennett. Guys, we're here! We are! We made it! This episode, we are starting for the first time with some opening credits. <gasps> opening credits?! It really tells the whole story very succinctly, and it's very beautiful visual storytelling um, that we can yeah, get into. Or you could talk about the music first, because I know you're itching to talk about that music. I am itching to talk about the music. So I love the theme song. Uh, and just to give a little bit of a background, the theme song is called Warriors. And uh, it is um, by Aaliyah Rose and was written by uh, Carrie Kimmel. It's kind of a cross between an 80s power ballad and a 90s magical girl anime theme song. So here's my thesis statement for the theme song. So when you listen to the theme song, you're, you're already hearing it's like this epic song about like heroes turning darkness into light and, you know, taking the sword by your hand and fighting the, you know fighting with fire and sword and flame like it's epic as shit but it actually draws from and is actually a um it's a comment it's a, it's a conversation with a previous song uh that you may have heard before and the song is called holding out for a hero and holding out for a hero is uh you know it's from the soundtrack of footloose it's one of those really classic power ballads by um bonnie tyler and written by uh the god of operatic metal rock explosion ridiculousness uh jim steinman so jim steinman was the songwriter and composer behind meatloaf's classic ridiculous album bad out of hell also wrote uh other amazing 80s power ballads like two out of three ain't bad is one uh, total eclipse of the heart is a jim steinman song oh i love that song yeah, like he writes the song. Now you're speaking my language. The huge songs, the huge epic songs with the, you know, the massive bombastic uh, production and the super over-the-top lyrics and uh, just like massively theatrical. Um, that's why I used operatic. It's massively theatrical uh, lyrics yes. and uh, music. Why is Warriors a conversation with Holding Out for a Hero? Well, Holding Out for a Hero is a song where uh, a woman's voice is looking for where all the good men, the good heroes are because she needs one. Aww. The world sucks. She needs her Hercules. She needs a Superman. She needs, you know, somebody to, to right, racing in on the thunder, rising in the heat. She needs to be, she needs to be swept away and saved. Warriors is uh, lyrically is a conversation with it. So while Bonnie Tyler's conversation is, you know, I'm looking for a warrior. I'm looking for someone to save me. Warriors is literally, we are going in to save you. We feel the evil coming, you know, the shadows all around. We're going to win in the end. We're going to be strong. We're going to fight. We're going to fight with sword and flame, not wait for thunder and light to save us. Aww. Um, sure. Okay, fine. Lyrically, they are in conversation. Musically, they are so similar. So the structure of the song itself is similar. It starts off with a similar kind of synth, you know, running synth beat into kind of the, the intro of the song, you know, whereas we feel the evil coming, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, you know, holding out for a hero is where have all the good men gone? You know, it starts off with this kind of like movement forward, right? And it's the same type of epic operatic. Yes. We're, I want to take a couple of seconds here. We're going to listen to Ooh. my own mashup of Holding Out for Some Warriors. Fuck yeah. We're on the edge of greatness Turning darkness to light you ready to fight? We're gonna win in the end. <laughs> 
so. Um, you just got that like synthesized going into it, and then you know the big like you know pre-chorus, and then the massive chorus. Yeah. It's also the same key. They're both in A minor. Oh, fancy. Yeah, well, <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> so can I talk for um, a quick second about the visual storytelling in the opening I credits? I want you to talk as much as you want about that, because okay. I like listening to you talk. Well, I don't want to dwell too long on the first 20 seconds of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's really wonderful the way it encapsulates the whole story of everything you really need to know in this 20 seconds. You know, we swoop into the credits on the magical wings of Swiftwind, and then we see Adora alone looking out into the distance heroically, but she's only alone for a moment because, oh wait, there's the best friend squad backing her up, and then there's the big gay magic sword, hello, and then we basically get this roller coaster of princesses. And I love the movement. It's like you're swooping, you're literally on a roller coaster, and each princess swoops by you like, oh hi, oh hi. And they're all, you know, on their own elemental path. You know, Perfuma, it's pushed up on a bed of flowers. And of course, Mermista's on a giant wave. And Frosta's, you know, on an iceberg. And it's just like swoop, swoop, swoop. And then after that, there's the Horde Cadet Gang. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. We love the Horde Cadet Gang. It's not their fault they were born into the Horde. Oh, they're so sweet. And then we pan up on Catra and her claws pop out and she gives you that smirk. <sighs> that smirk that is not gay as in happy, but queer as in fuck you. Oh, sweet baby Catra. And then she's framed by Shadowweaver and Hordak over her shoulders, who are both shown much larger than she is, while Catra herself is much larger than the rest of the Horde kids. So that shows a clear pecking order on the Horde side, while I notice that everyone on the Rebel side is the same size, and they're all shown basically as equals. Because the Rebellion doesn't have a pecking order, they rely heavily on community and mutual trust. And then the climax of the credits is Catra and Adora clashing in the middle. And again, Catra with that little side smirk. <laughs> Holy shit. And then, you know, the very end is a big group shot of all the good guys looking enthusiastic together. Yeah, and, and She-Ra is uh, standing in the power stance with the sword raised up, rallying everybody to fight for the Rebellion. I think that's one thing that I do want to I want to uh, speak to really quickly that you see this throughout the show. While they are still kind of having to be framed with the names like Perfuma and Glimmer and all of these like Mermista, the mermaid, and all of these like traditional quote unquote understandings of feminine or girly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they still and many of them still embody what those understandings of feminine and girly are. They are powerful mm -hmm. and they're they're powerful in particular ways that both, you know, do not downplay what the feminine is, but they are also strong. Like they are physically strong. They are um fuck yeah. They are resolute. They're not dependent on one type of power, you know. There's not feminine wiles. It's, you know, they get That's true. they get dirty, they bleed, they That's scratch. True. That's true. But they also cry. Yeah. Which is so cool. It's so cool. You know, it's not girl power. It's power. Yeah. And... It's power wielded by girls. Yep. And that's fucking sick. Yeah. Power wielded by a bunch of gays, too. I mean, like... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so as soon as... So we go back, we leave to where we left Shira, but as soon as that initial moment of becoming passes... She has the most relatable, hilariously human reaction. Oh, my God. She just looks down at herself, uh -huh. <laughs> takes in what has happened, that she's now suddenly an eight foot tall goddess warrior, and she just screams and falls down. Yeah, she has no fucking idea what she's doing. Because she has no fucking idea what just happened. It's not even about what she's yeah. doing. It's like, what the fuck just happened to me? Yeah, it's I love that that's that's what they chose to do with the big damn hero moment instead yeah. of going like oh shit well looks like i'm a hero now it's so humanizing it's very humanizing. what the fuck because it shows that just because something epic just happened to you doesn't automatically mean that you know what to do with it yes you know she falls down shira goes away she's adora again the glimmer immediately takes that distraction moment to jump in and try to grab the sword again 
and they're stupid fighting again. Oh my god, I love their stupid fighting. And Adora's just completely freaked out. Uh, yeah, they're back to stupid fighting. And Adora's like, what did you do to me? That's her first question. What did you do to me? Yep. So she's freaked out. She's blaming her magical gay puberty on the nearest person. That's what I put in my notes. Magical gay puberty? I love that. Yes, yes. Um. Yeah, I just put does not want to be a princess. Right. I didn't know being a princess was contagious. That's my first entry into um, we all know that we all know that we know. Uh, I didn't think being a princess was contagious. That's so funny because my first nom is like the very next line. When she says, all I did was touch the sword and whoosh, I'm in a tiara. (laughs) The way she screeches the word tiara, like it is a fate worse than death. Like it is the worst thing she can imagine to be in a tiara. Against her will. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Let's put those two together and have that be our first nomination for We All Know That We All Know That We Know. Gayest moment. Number one. I have a feeling that all the gayest moment noms in this episode are just going to be each one so much gayer than the last. The gay is going to escalate to the point where... Dramatically. Uh, yeah. Where your phone might explode while you're listening to this episode. Hey, Adore will not be responsible for exploding phones. However, if your phone starts to drip gay, that is my fault. I'm sorry. (laughs) So they're a hot mess right now. They can't figure their shit out. The bug is waking up from its Shira thrall since she is no longer the Shira. But wants her to do it again. Do what she did before. She doesn't know what she did before. She's just a magical baby. So time to run. They run, they fall into the first one's ruin. Ugh, and then we get to one of my favorite tropes, which is magically knowing a dead language. Oh my gosh. I love the trope of magically knowing a dead language and not knowing that you know the language. Those that are that, That's a great trope. That drives me a little bit crazy. You gotta let it go, but it makes me kind of crazy when someone just magically knows a dead language because their ancestors spoke it. I Even though they've never seen real. it or read it. That would be great. That would be great. Then we would both speak Hebrew. Yeah, It'd be exactly. so easy. And possibly Aramaic. Yeah, I guess it depends if there's a statute of limitations on how far back you can go. Exactly. Hmm, interesting. So what is the word, math that she reads? The word that she reads is Eternia. Yes. Can I tell you a fun fact about Eternia? Yes, I wonder if it's the same fun fact that I have. Oh, I bet it is the same fun fact. It probably is. So according is. to the S-Pop wiki... And according to the original show also, um, Eternia is the first one's home planet. And there's this great little nugget that, again, from the S-Pop wiki, they said, if you pay close attention in episode 411, Beast Island, there is a backmast, aka backwards audio message coming from the heart of Beast Island, if you pay close attention in that episode. And if you played in reverse, which is like really in forward, since it's a backwards message, it says, planet-wide evacuation required. All units return to Eternia. Oh, Cool. Maybe that's not what you were going to say. It's not what I was going to say. So, um, as an old person, I watched uh, the original show as well as He-Man. This is probably the only other time in which I'm going to refer to the original She-Ra. Eternia is not only where the first ones are from, but where He-Man is from. So in the right. original series, He-Man and She-Ra are Adam and Adora, and they're twins. And that's what Eternia is. Yes. So... Adora says Eternia, doors open, in they go. And now they are inside the first one's ruin. And it's all by colors again. Are we sure these aren't Glimmer's ancestors? Oh, 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 that, ooh. I mean, I know they're not, but. No, but that does bring up a really interesting point of, uh, and we're going to get to that once we are introduced to uh, Queen Angela, who is an immortal angel being. But, like, where did she come from? Well, we never really find that out, do we? No, we don't. We can wildly speculate. Yes, we can. That's always fun. Um, so as soon as they're in the door, though, Glimmer is super suspicious that Adora just happened to read a word in a dead language that nobody's spoken for a thousand years, and the door just happened to open into a cool, mysterious clubhouse of ancient ruins. It's almost like Glimmer's never heard of this trope. <laughs> it's almost like... Glimmer doesn't know that her enemy is actually her uh, mythical savior come to life. But also, Adora's kind of equally pissed because she legit has no idea what's going on. 
And at this point, she's feeling kind of violated about it, Yeah, I would say. I, I would definitely agree. So um, we're going to talk about Joseph Campbell again, because of course we are. This is probably the closest we get to the denial of the call. Um, because yeah. while she doesn't like say, fuck this, I'm not going to do it. She definitely is taken aback and is not excited about you know being called to being being called to be the hero but she also is intrigued by what it means which we're going to be getting to uh in some future conversations yes when she admits it more openly which is a very tasty part of this episode might i add so yeah she's like you think i did this on purpose you people are monsters why would i you know why would i choose this life <laughs> oh god this is gay ha 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 so while Glimmer is still hella suspicious and Adora is, you're right, at this moment she is as close as she's going to get to denying the call because she's not walking away, but she's like, what the actual fuck is happening right now? And Bo is not hung up on any of this stuff. He's just happy that she saved him. Oh, I love sweet baby Bo. He's such a, he's such a sweetie. Sweet baby Bo. I love how just he like immediately establishes their like sweet baby bro relationship. Like They are wonderful bros and sweet. So they're walking along, having their little bronus dialogue, and Glimmer thinks she might see some first ones etchings. And Adora has never heard of the first ones. Bo and Glimmer are shocked. Yeah. But so we've established now that Adora has no idea who the first ones are. Of course, it establishes the fact that it's insane that Adora lives in the world and has no idea about the whole entire world. Yeah. Like nothing in the world. Except for the tiny little bubble that she was raised in, she has literally no knowledge. And she was king shit of that world, too. I mean, like, yeah. she didn't have any need to explore the outside of it because she was, you know, she was the she was the ruler in hell instead of serving in heaven, you know? She's... <laughs> That's well put. Yeah. That's well put. But I don't, I mean, again, I don't think she had the remotest idea that that was the case. And I think as soon as, again, as we see, as soon as she starts to understand that that is the case, she's horrified and she wants no part of it. I mean, it. yeah. I mean, you are right. The system in, in the Fright Zone is working for her very nicely and she has no reason to question things. Right. And we'll put a pin on this because uh, having a conversation about Adora's understanding of justice and fairness does come into play later. Yes. And also, like, it's pretty central to the entire series. If we, if we start talking about that in depth right now, <laughs> we're never getting anywhere. Yes. But so it's important that she's just now realizing how heavily curated, so we, shall we say, yes. her experience of the world has been by Shadow Weaver and Hordak. Yep. So now Glimmer is frustrated. She wants to turn on the lights. Bo doesn't think that's a great idea. He wants her to save her magical strength because it'll be a while before she can recharge her powers. And this is a great moment for Adora. Gayest moment nomination number two. You have to recharge your powers. Gay smirk. Her first, her very first cocky gay smirk. Adora's cocky gay smirk is iconic. Yes. It's very beautiful. And it's so gay. It's so gay. I was just thinking that Adora's cocky gay smirks remind me a lot of Avatar Korra and her cocky gay smirks. Another cocky dumbass very awesome gay hero. Cora is bisexual. Yes. Queer hero. Um, Thank you. Another queer hero yep. from a very similar themed show. Yeah. We have we have called Shira Avatar Shira several times already. Mm -hmm. um, and you actually do see a parallel uh, between the last the last two minutes of Cora um, and the last two minutes of Shira. There's actually a shot by shot that you can actually look at. Ooh. Well, that will be interesting when we get there. But in this moment, for our purposes, we are just interested in these two awesome queer hero avatar types with the best ever cocky gay smirks that you have seen. So good. Yes. But Glimmer, Glimmer throws caution to the wind. She doesn't listen to Bo's warning. She turns on the magic lights and it's a big Shira temple. Huh, who would have thought that? Who could have guessed that in the midst of all of this sudden Shira adventures, there would be a Shira temple. You know, if I had money on this, I wouldn't have put it there and I would have lost. <laughs> and so they see Glimmer notices there is a giant etching on the wall of a faceless Shira figure. A faceless figure, you say? Um, and this is definitely not a portrait, right? It's not a portrait of a person from history. It's an archetypal faceless figure, which means it's iterations of a mythical figure from history. So this is something that we know 
um, would have been embodied by different women over the millennia and all Aetherians would recognize it as such. They would all know that there's not just one Shira, you know, there's the Shira. Yep. And before before we get too deep into like the big picture discussion of what the ramifications of that are, um, there's a couple of details of that etching that I would like to make note of. Absolutely. Number one is that there are planets behind her, which is interesting because there are no other planets or stars or anything in the dimension that they are in. You only see the moons. Yes, there's no stars and there's no other planets around Etheria in the uh, dimension of Despondos where they are. And they have mentioned it. They will mention it if they haven't already mentioned it. And you also see it. I mean, you see it visually in the introduction of the show and you see it whenever they do any sort of skyscape. skyscape. Yes, you do. You only see the moons. That is very true. I was going to say you only see blackness, but that's not true. Even in space, the sky is bicolors. Yep. <laughs> it's never just black. <laughs> bicolored. Aw, bisexual um, outer so... space is like everything that everybody in my house believes in. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Hallelujah. And so the second little moment to make note of before we move on is when Bo says, hey, look, it's you. And Adora's first reaction is like, bro, are you crazy? <laughs> um, but then Bo clarifies. He says, no, no, the other you, the scary lady with the cape. And then she looks at it again and she says, that's me. Mm-hmm. And she says the first word like a question and the second word like a statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this also starts the conversation with Adora as well as with Glimmer and Bo. And then later we'll see it with Katra. On who is She-Ra and who is Adora. Mm-hmm. Um, and instantly we have Bo saying, it's the other you. Mm-hmm. We're going to see how Glimmer sees it soon. And we still have Adora trying to figure out what that is. Yeah, she says, that's me? Well, that's me. But there's still like the conversation of who is Adora? Who is She-Ra? You know, is it the same person? Is it two people? Well, everyone, including Adora, always refers to Shira as a separate person. Except for but Katra. But this is the first moment. Ooh, interesting. Because Katra, we'll get to that. Put a pin in that, but that is juicy. Uh-huh. I can't believe I did not pick up on that. Yep. We have to talk about archetypes because we did talk about Joseph Campbell last week. We did. And we touched on archetypes when we were discussing the collective unconscious very briefly. Uh-huh. And we talked about how Joseph Campbell might have said that some things were universal but we weren't comfortable with that. And so we were going to say archetypal instead. Nobody's saying that things that are archetypal are always, always, always 100% in every culture and every time period. But let's take a second because these sheer images are so archetypal in that they are faceless, which obviously means, you know, more than one person can inhabit that image. It's an iconic image. It's a mythical image. Um, Let's get into that a little bit more. Jenny, I am so excited that you are going to define our terms. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, archetypal first comes from Greek, as many English words do, from two separate words, arche, which means primitive, and tupos, which means a model. So a primitive model. And then later that transformed into archetupon, something molded first as a model. And then eventually in the mid 16th century, that became the Latin word archetype. So you can wrap your mind around that a little bit as like, you know, like a word cloud. Uh And there's certainly, you know, more than one um, functional definition. You know, you could just use the word archetype as a sub-in for prototype or a perfect example. Uh And you can just say it to mean a recurrent symbol or motif in art, literature, or mythology. Right. But because we are talking about the collective unconscious and how that functions in myth and storytelling, we are interested in the psychological definition, which was coined by Carl Jung because he is also the one who coined the collective unconscious. So let's talk for a second about Jung, Carl Jung, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in history, even though we're talking about our second dead white guy now. Bear with us. We will talk about many other important, awesome thinkers who are not white guys. I promise. They might even still be alive. They might even. How about that? So Carl Jung was a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. He lived in Switzerland from 1875 to 1961. He was the founder of analytical psychology and also the big brain behind archetypes, collective unconscious, anima animus, shadow material, and extroversion introversion. So these are a lot of, you know pretty big key ideas in modern psychology that we all enjoy. So Jung's original definition of archetypes are forms or images of a collective nature 
which occur practically all over the world as constituents of myth and at the same time as autochthonous individual products of unconscious origin. Autochthonous is such a good I know. word. I'm going to tell everybody what that means, too, in a second. And that's from Psychology and Religion, his book from 1937. Which is a banger, by the way. Oh, it's a banger. It's just if you need some light bedtime reading. Yeah. So now let's define autochthonous, because even I, when I first read that, I was like, wait, what is that word? <laughs> that word is exactly what it should mean for what for what it's saying. It means ideas that arise independently in the individual's own train of thought, yet seem instead to have some alien or external agency as their source. Mm. So what we're so let's break it down again. What we're talking about when we talk about archetypes are pervasive ideas, images, or symbols that arise in our own individual unconscious minds. And when we talk about the collective unconscious, that's when we're talking about these images also occur independently across many different cultures around the world long before they'd ever had contact with each other. These symbols are hardwired into our brains. So that's, you know, these ideas are powerful. And the fact that the Shira etching on the wall is faceless caught me right away as a key indicator to the fact that this is an archetypal figure in their world. It's not one specific person and it never was. It's iterations of their archetype of their hero. It's something that everyone in Etheria can recognize and trust because it is part of their collective unconscious. Yep, everybody in Etheria understands that there's a scary lady in the cape. <laughs> yes, but they also understand her, you know, as their savior. And as Angela says later, and as we can imagine, many Etherians also probably share this belief, they never really expected her. Right. to exist. But they all know, they all know the myth. Right. In the same way, you know, I admit if Moshiach appeared tomorrow, I would be pretty fucking skeptical. Moshiach, for those of you who don't know, is the the original the original Messiah who ha has not come yet. Yeah. Jesus, you know, was the Moshiach that some people thought, "Oh, he came. We're done waiting." And the other people were like, "No, we're that's not him. We're still waiting. The people who are still waiting are the Jews. Yep. The people who are like, oh, that's him. We're done waiting are the Christians. Yep. So we're all, you know, we're all one big family. And that's how Christians were made. That's how Christians were made. No, I was going to bring up the Messiah stuff, but also like, you know, Noel did grow up as a as a uh, hardcore, I believe, evangelical Christian. So yes, that is correct. And then uh, after we have seen and gazed upon the magnificence of the Shira etching, Adora reads the word written on it, which is Shira. Yeah, who would have thought? Who would have thought? And some kind of ancient hologram appears. Who is this ancient hologram? We don't know yet. Oh, I love Art Deco uh, Art Deco bisexual holograms. Oh, don't we all? Yeah, they're my favorite yeah. ones. Well, it hasn't been named yet. We could just call her Light Hope 1.0, maybe. We know it's Light Hope, but, you know, she hasn't named herself yet. And this is like, this is a very beta version of Light Hope because she's not really working. Yeah. Right? She's not responding to anything. No, she's, um, you know, when you lose, like, if you're like in a movie theater and they shut off the lights and you still have the track lighting or like, you know, she's emergency lighting of this nice. temple. I'll accept that. She's like, no, nope, all the power's that. off, but the emergency lighting is still on. You know you're fucked yes. when the emergency lighting goes off. Oh, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, she's still looking for the administrator. Yep. And Glimmer accidentally puts her arm through it. Good job, Glimmer. Which is bad. Everything goes red. Lockdown. Lockdown initiated. Yep. And all of this old stuff as it's trying to go into lockdown is just falling apart. Yep. Things are not looking good. And Adora mentions, you know, hey, listen, uh, there's a picture of the scary lady in the cape who is apparently me. Maybe I can do something, you know, because... It's the Scary Lady in the Cape show starring the Scary Lady in the Cape because it's fucking everywhere in the damn temple. Maybe <laughs> if I had the sword, I could be the Scary Lady in the Cape and fix it. And Glimmer's like, fuck you. Yeah. Just go fuck yourself on the fuck you horse that you fuck you rode in on. I, I believe it was a fuck you skiff. Oh, it was a fuck you skiff. It was. No, no. I mean, yes. Glimmer is still really hung up on the fact that this is a horde soldier. Yep. You know, even though there is self-interest now involved. Yes, but she just doesn't, you know, whether or not it's smart, she just does not trust Adora. Not because of Adora. She only sees the face of the horde. For better or worse, Glimmer's not ready to give it up. Nope. 
So instead, she puts herself into physical danger. Yes, that is her go-to move, for sure. Also, in the same way, that is Adora's go-to move. She would rather put herself in danger often than let other people jump in. And there are times when she also takes away other people's agency without really meaning to. Yeah, but the motivation is different. Yes, that is true. She teleports all three of them out. Bo lets us know she's never done that before. Yep, and Bo, oh, sweet baby Bo. He takes great care of her, even when they're falling through the sky. Oh, I mean, if you can't take care of someone when you're falling through the sky, when can you really ever take care of them? I don't know. And also, you know, if you have a net arrow in your arrow bag over your shoulder, if you don't use it now, when else are you going to use it? When else are you going to net? And this is a really sick action shot also. They're falling out of the sky and, you know, it seems like a pretty hard scenario to imagine. How are you going to get out of this one? None of you fly. Shoots the arrow net, boom, they land, boom, everything goes to black. And it's very jarring, you know, especially even the way they chose to show it from you're looking from underneath. And it's like, I could really feel that impact. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. Um, A lot of the times that I recently especially have been rewatching these episodes, I am appreciating more and more the influence of you know, the comics and the graphic novels. You can really see, you know, the panels at play even though they're moving. All these shots, you know, from different angles, they're really taking advantage of the medium. You can be anywhere in terms of your point of view. Yep. I think it's pretty sick, too. So there's actually, I think maybe there's one last point in this scene before the scene is over, is that they want to know, why the fuck is Adora still here? She's clearly not a prisoner anymore. Oh, yeah. Why is Adora still here? This is really tasty. Yes. And this is where we get the first glimpse of what Adora's motivations are for leaving the Horde. Yes. She just wants to know what is happening to her and where she comes from. This is where she, this is actually where she makes the decision to leave the Horde. Because she even says, like, if I go back to the Fright Zone, I will never know. Yep. It's not a moral imperative for her. It's a self-discovery imperative. I think that there's both of those things happening. And it's not necessarily all, I can't, I don't know if there's ever any one moment to say that, like, oh, it's not a moral imperative. I think it's both. Very much so. I think there's moral imperative wrapped up in it very strongly also, but we just haven't gotten to that scene yet. But she explicitly said, so I, I wrote down the quote, and I was like, I just want to figure out what's happening to me. And if I go back to the fright zone, I'll never know. But she says, I can't go back there. And I agree that like this is one of the key moments. It, I think that her decision, it comes to her in, in chunks over the course of this episode. And this is one of the important chunks. Right. But this is not the end-all be-all. I think there's another really important moment in the siege on Thamor that's coming. I think you'll agree when we get there. I think that solidifies it. I think she's made up her mind and then she really makes up her mind, you know? like Sure. There's a difference between I can't go back and I am not going back. That's true. That is true. And I think you're right. That is the that is the difference between her the two points of her decisions to not go back home. Because it's home. Yeah, of course. Yes, yes. Well, we smash cut into Shadow Weaver's spooky scrying bowl. Spooky scrying bowl. We see that she's been tracking Adora with her evil magic. But even though she is tracking Adora with her shadow spies in her spooky scrying bowl. She's still grilling Katra. Yeah, she's still fucking with Katra. Sweet baby Katra. And Katra's fucked up over this. She's like, I don't know where Adora is. Of course, she's not like, she's not showing her hand, but. Right. You think I keep her on a leash? I mean. That's a nice image for all of us. Yeah, I don't think, not yet. <laughs> but Shadow Weaver is definitely taunting Katra a little bit. She says, you two are close. She would never leave without telling you. Yep. Right? And she knows that she's either going to be hurting Katra because maybe it's true, or if it's not true, which is more likely, then she's putting Katra more and more on the spot and making her more and more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And because Katra doesn't know where Adora ran off to, she's still protecting her. Right, right. Like, she's like, as far as I know, she like left me in the middle of the night Mm-hmm. You know, saying, I'll be right back. I'm just going out for a carton of milk and a pack of cigarettes. And I mean, it, it's not, it's one of those situations where it's like, it all has to be this way. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that people can't be hurt 
That doesn't mean you have to understand and you have to be able to say it's okay. And then, of course, Shadow Weaver's like, oh, you know what I love to do? I love making Catra miserable. You're going to find her and bring her back to us and you mm-hmm. will pay. So it's it's the typical villain minion scene, right? Like, the, you will find her and bring her back to me. Well, but this is also the first time that we see Catra being physically abused by Shadow Weaver, which is a real turning point. Right? She says, you will find her and bring her back. Catra says, no, thank you. And she's pulling her usual attitude. She's walking away. And then she is frozen in yep. this horrifying field of red echeltricity. Yeah. Ooh, echeltricity. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's how Mr. Weasley says it. Echeltricity. Yes. Um, yeah, and actually, that's what I have in my I have in my notes is this would be the typical villain minion scene. Yeah, no, If it wasn't right. for the fact that Shadow Weaver is her mother figure. Yeah. She's not a minion. She's not a minion. She's her child. Well, she's her ward. She's her ward, but I mean, psychologically. Yes. You know, yes. Psycho- psychologically, this is, this, is her, this is essentially her child. She's her ward. She's the, she's the person that raised her. She's the yes. primary person that raised her. Yes. That, that contextualization is, <laughs> makes this scene really, really fucking dark. Yes. And the way visually that Catra is shown caught in these energy rays, the way her facial muscles are twitching, she has this single drop of sweat. She's terrified. And we have never seen this look on Catra before. Ugh. <laughs> and then the next cut was really heartbreaking for me when they cut to Thamor, the festival time for Adora. I don't know if this was just me because I'm such a soft, sensitive person or whether this was something that everybody felt. When you were leaving Catra being tortured by Shadow Weaver. And now we're going over to Adora, who is going into this magical little town, and she's attending her first party, and the world is opening up with wonder for her, while her best friend is left behind in torture. It's just so sad. It's so sad. And then it's compounded on the fact that Adora doesn't know what a party is. Right. Not only does she's never been to a party, she has no idea what the concept of a party is. Yep. Oh, right. Parties. I don't know what that is. And I actually wanted to bring up the Spartan concept of a goge. Or a gage. I believe it is a gage. Uh, If you speak ancient Greek, first of all, call me. And then (laughs) second of all, correct me. And third of all, please correct me on how my interpretation of this. But, um... Gage was the uh, training and education program for male Spartan citizens. Um, and it was how they cultivated loyalty in the Spartan military. It's oh, where no. the idea of something being Spartan comes from. <laughs> the aim of the system was to create perfect warriors. And you do that through uh, conformity. It's very similar to what the Horde does. You do it, you know, strict discipline. Right, sure. You're encouraged to fight amongst each other in order to determine the strongest member of the group. Ooh, yeah, I guess so. It's what Shadow Weaver does to Catra and Adora. It's separating the strong from the weak. And it also, you know, it's the state encouraging the mission to be more important than personal interests. And that is done in, you know, the similar way that how they live. They live in communal groups. There's communal mess halls. They are only given one item of clothing. They are only fed the bare minimum in order to keep them alive, but not to derive pleasure from food. Like ration bars. Yes. Nothing was for pleasure. Nothing was for pleasure. And that's Yeah, of course. That's the point here. Is that Adora was raised in a in an environment where nothing is for pleasure. And Absolutely. Very much like the way that the Spartans were raised. Absolutely. That is Very good comparison, no question. It is so sad because she doesn't know what a party is, and she doesn't know what cake is, she doesn't know what storytelling is. I think Bo has cottoned on to this pretty quickly, how sad her life is. Yep. I mean, he definitely says that. Yeah. So that's why he has to stop everything and make sure that she experiences this party. Yep. Uh, One of my favorite parts coming up is the fact that we learn that Adora is a lesbian horse girl. Oh my god. She's a horse girl. I love Adora being a horse girl. I was a horse girl too. Yeah, you were. (laughs) And I have the ribbons to prove it. (laughs) Gayest moment nom number three is, is the horse moment. What is 
that. It's majestic. The horse throws his head back and, you know, magical bubbles appear behind it. Oh, yeah. And she says, this is the best day of my life. Because <laughs> she gets to hit things, hit a pinata with a stick, eat cake and meet a horse. Yes. Aww, that does sound like fun. What more could a baby lesbian horse girl ask for? I can't think of anything else. Definitely not a horde attack. No, definitely not a horde attack. And yet, Adora is like, what? We didn't do anything. And Bo's like, yeah, the people of Thamor aren't a threat. And Adora goes, um, uh oh. This was, you know, this was supposed to be her first job. Obviously, they're going to listen to her. Right. And that moment when she runs in front of the tank and she just blocks the tank with her body and she doesn't even flinch when it comes right up to her nose. Yep. That's an awesome moment. I mean, she's obviously confident that they're going to stop and they're not yeah. going to run her over. Yeah, exactly. And who's who's driving the tank? Who most wanted to drive a tank? That we can recall. <laughs> oh, see this moment in Thamor is where everybody gets to have a tiny bit of pleasure in their life. Oh, God. I know. And here comes the most important scene of the entire series. Maybe no big deal. No big deal. Yeah. Yes. So obviously we're just going to burn right through it. So, <laughs> so again, Catra greets Adora by leaping fully on top of her and straddling her and purring. How many times does this make? We have not been keeping count. It's quite a few already. It's 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 a lot. It's at least three. And that's just within the first, like, you know, 35 minutes of... Yes, the entire series. Yeah, the entire series. Yeah, so Catra still thinks that Adora is, like, on her side. She's like, look what, look, they let me drive a tank. Isn't that cool? We're here to get you. Come on, let's go. She still thinks it's still Adora. Yeah, well, I mean, it is still Adora. But her Adora. And it's not her Adora. You know, Adora also thinks that she knows Katra, that Katra's going to listen to her, right? As long as she says words that make sense, she thinks Katra will listen to her. Right. Hey, we have to stop this. This is a civilian help town. Me, help me stop this. These are innocent people. And she's like, what? Why? Yeah. Why? These are not innocent people. Yeah. Uh, Katra is under the impression that she was kidnapped. Well, technically, she kind of was, but not by these people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and once again, there's another there's another Catra deflecting things with humor and snark being like, Shadow Weaver's freaking out. It would be so funny if she wasn't such a terrible person. I know, I love that line. And once again, Catra physically pulling Adora with her by the hand. Yeah. No social distance for Catra Dora. No, never. Ever. I mean, never. No. And this is when Adora says that she can't go back. Yeah, this is the climax of the episode that sets up the rest of the entire series. Yep. So, you know, Katra is now very good natured. She grabs Adora by the wrist, says, come on, let's go home. Adora says she can't go back until the Horde leaves this town alone. And she shares her revelation with Katra that Shadow Weaver and Hordak have been lying to them and manipulating them like it's brand new information. And Katra's like, no shit. Yeah. Katra definitely has some pent up frustration that Adora has had the privileged position of not having to see any of this shit up until this moment. And that things, you know, in their dystopian childhood have actually been pretty easy for Adora relative to how they've been for Katra. Right. Katra's like, yeah, no shit. You haven't had to face up to any of this yet? Yep. It kind of lays the groundwork for Catra being the uh, socially intelligent one throughout the throughout the series too. Catra's one that comes with the with the uh, the plans that really kind of get to Adora. Yes, that is always true. She knows how to throw Adora off versus Adora, who's just like, I have a sword. <laughs> that is very true. I'm gonna hit you and then I'm gonna kiss you. Oh, I love them so much. But as much as Katra is expressing her frustration, like, yeah, duh, like, did you just figure that out? Adora is also shocked that Katra doesn't wanna fight back. Right. Like, how can you possibly be okay with this? And Katra has an answer. <sighs> because it doesn't matter what they do, the two of us look out for each other. And Katra just wants them to go home together. Would that it were so easy. This, this line, and I'm actually going to read the lines verbatim. These are the most important lines in terms of the characters, their interaction with each other, their everything. Until we okay, get to the end. I'll give you that. So, Adora says, how could you possibly be okay with that? And Katra says, because it doesn't matter what they do. The two of us look out for each other and soon we'll be calling the shots. Now, can we go home? So this is yes. already Adora being like external. Adora is an mm -hmm. external thinker. She looks 
Oh, yeah. She looks at what is happening outside of the interpersonal relationships. She's looking at right and wrong. Or even without putting a moral a moral spin on it, she's looking at high level. She's looking 10,000 feet. She's seeing it as a strategist. She's seeing as like... Yeah, she's looking see- at what's happening in the world. Right. And Katra is not... Catra's focus is what is happening with them, what is happening internally. That's very this true. It's massive because it sets up their journeys. Adora's journey is an external journey. Adora has a traditional hero tra- trajectory. Adora's yes. journey is the journey of the plot of the yes. series. Yes. Catra's journey is an internal journey. It starts here. Catra's heart is broken. Fuck yeah. She has to go on an emotional journey. She has to go on the emotional journey. It only ends, the actual story itself culminates and then ends when they can meet at the heart. When the two journeys, the two parallel journeys can come together. That is why this is the most important back and forth in the entire series. Yeah. It, It literally sets up the path of movement. Yes. You heard it here first, everybody. Motherfuckers, that's why there are two protagonists in this series. It is not one protagonist. It is two protagonists. I definitely agree with that. Catra Mm -hmm. is not the antagonist of the series. No, absolutely. I agree with that. Nets. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. I agree with that 100%. Then we have Adora responding to Catra being like, it doesn't matter what happens outside. We're here together. Like, we Mm -hmm. stick together. Mm -hmm. And then this next part is where I really, like, fall apart into, like, a big pile of, like, gay crying heart goo. Oh, it's, of course. Well, (laughs) it's like, yeah, because, you know, Catra just wants the two of them to go home already. And I feel that and I want her to be happy. But then right at this moment, and it's such a, it's so beautiful the way this moment is encapsulated with obviously with dialogue but also with the scene the way it's framed the action like literally the way the shot is framed but also the way the action frames what is happening between the two of them um there's a big explosion off camera we hear it we don't see it and we see the smoke we hear the screams and adora we see adora react to it and she squares her shoulders and she's even more resolute and she says she can't go back after everything she's seen. And then she reaches out to Catra's hand, right? And says, come with me. Yes. And then she basically proposes. Yeah. She gets down on one knee. Obviously, this is this will be the winning. We all know that we all know gayest moment. Agreed. She gets down on one knee, takes Catra's hand and says, come with me. We can fix this together. You don't have to go back there. I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. I would just like to say that when I was watching this for the first time, like, again, we as queer viewers, as adult queer viewers, we have certain expectations. We have certain low expectations that have been, you know, over time built into us. Um, But so when that scene happened, again, it's like the second episode. It got so gay so fast. And I happened to be watching with uh, a very good friend of mine who had moved to San Diego after being my roommate in Brooklyn for five years and I was visiting them. And it was pouring rain the whole first day I was there. And of course, everything we planned to do was outdoor stuff. So we said to each other, hey, didn't the new Shira reboot just drop? Why don't we just watch that? And we spent the whole day binging it. So this was only the second episode. I stood up off the couch for absolutely no reason when I saw this happening and I grabbed my friend's leg for, for again, like, it's just this instinctual response. Like, holy, ha- what? What is happening? How is this happening? We're only on the second episode. This is the gayest moment. I mean, the, the most important moment of the series is also one of the gayest moments of the series, right? Yes, because the yes. other most important moment of the series is the gayest moment in the series because yes. the show is just about S- gay so love. Gay. So <laughs> it's gay. It's about gay love. Which is so wonderful. So I want to circle up just for a second. Um, so Adora, you know, she gets on her knee. She says, baby, you don't have to go back there. Come run away with me. We can fix this. This is Adora's focus on the external. I'm not going home. I've seen too many things. You should come with me so we can fix this. We're not going to go back into the past. Catra says, are you kidding me? You've known these people for a couple of hours, meaning Catra mm-hmm. will continue to hold on to memory. You're just going to throw away, throw everything away for them. Catra is not saying you're not going to be forced, Captain. She doesn't give a fuck about that. Right. She's like, you're just going to ditch me for these dorks. But Adora doesn't want to ditch her. But this is also, once again, Adora 
looking at the big picture, adorb, right. having external motivations, being mm-hmm. the external thinker, mm-hmm. Catra being the internal one, Catra having internal motivations, Catra saying, you've known these people for a couple of hours, you've known me your entire life, right. you're my fucking girlfriend, and you're right. raising me for these dorks. Right. You're going to throw everything away for them. Exactly. She says, I don't know, but I have to do something. And she apologizes to Catra. Yeah. And of course she wants Catra to come with her. She doesn't want Catra to go back to that shitty place either. She says, you don't have to go back there. But Catra doesn't know anything else. And also Catra doesn't see that motivation to go. Like she's like, what are you talking about? We've promised each other that we're going to do this thing. Why can't we just stick to the promise? You know, why can't we why can't we stay on the course? Right. Of course. Even though the comfortable thing is toxic, when it's all you know, and especially again, after coming from a life of abuse and trauma, there is generally very little faith that if you let go of that, there could be anything better. It's like the devil you know. Right. And it's also Catra's We Can Fix This. Catra's We Can Fix This is We Can Fix This together back at home. Adora's We Can Fix This is We Can Fix This outside of where we were. Like, Right. We can fix this for the whole world. External and internal. Yes. Yes. So that means, unfortunately, at this moment, if Adora's walking away, she's going to get zapped. Yep. Oh, man. Why do you zap your girlfriend? Not a good choice. Not a good look, Catra. And then we kind of we go to Bo and Glimmer. And Bo and Glimmer are, they're kind of fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Glimmer is, you know, Bo's almost out of arrows. Glimmer's almost out of magic. Yep. And Bo's like trying to give her the psych up. And Glimmer's like, no, I definitely shouldn't be throwing myself into every fight. Maybe I fucked up. Right. And Bo's like, no, you're the shit. You can do this. And Glimmer's like, no, you know what? I was super wrong. We need Adora. Mm-hmm. Which Bo was not expecting her to say. Bo was not expecting her to say. And Glimmer explicitly says in this moment that she needs they need Adora mm-hmm. which is important because in a lot of the series even Bo and Glimmer her you know her two best friends depersonalize her and you know we need Shira. where'd Shira go like mm. and even you know it's true they don't say right now that they need Shira. they say they need Adora they, they recognize they recognize that Adora is Shira. yep it's true they are embracing her as a whole person as Adora the Horde soldier, they are accepting her. And Bo actually was like, wait, didn't she sell us out to the Horde? And Glimmer was like, no, I don't actually think that she did. And apparently Glimmer's trust is the key. Well, and the sword, of course. Oh, man. And then we go back to then we go back to, to the Catradora show. Yes, yes. The, the Catradora S&M breakup. Yep. But I just I thought it was really funny because it gets pretty intense. When you go from the kind of intensity and closeness that they've had to, okay, you're not going to do what I want. I'm going to fucking zap you. Yes. And not excusing, but am pointing this out. They both come from a place where physical... So, you know, we've seen throughout the show, throughout both episodes that, you know, they're physical with each other. They're very physical with each other. They're soldiers, they're fighters, they they touch each other all the time, catch a jumps on her, like, it's it's a thing. They're physical with each other. Um, just as they're physical with each other, they come from a culture where you fight each other. Oh, yeah, but this is like a next level thing. I agree with you 100%. But being zapped, again, this is like when we see Shadow Weaver um, torturing Catra with, you know, trapping her with the electrical beams or whatever it was. That's like a next level thing where you're like, oh, fuck, shit just got real. I'm not, and I'm definitely not saying that this is not real because this is shit getting real. Especially, in fact, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm emphasizing this because Catra says, oh, shit, sorry. It doesn't say shit, obviously, but you yeah, know, it's like, yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> it was a reflex. Yep, absolutely. Once again, this is Catra going back to what Catra knows versus mm-hmm. Adora, who is going to what Adora can know. Yeah, that's deep, man. I'm fucking deep. I support you on that. Thank you. But so then also we get to another super gay moment, which again is core to their relationship and core to the whole show. Why are you doing this? Because you left me. And if I don't bring you back, Shadow Weaver will have my head. Those are Catra's two big emotional beats. Yes. One, you left me. I love mm-hmm. you. You left me. You're all the mm-hmm. only thing I've, ca- you know, you're the, you're the one thing I care about. Right. And you were the one person who was never supposed to leave. And two, if I don't bring you back, I'm going to continue to get horribly, physically, emotionally abused by our mother figure. Yes, absolutely. Bo and Glimmer come, come cantering into the rescue on their friend Horsey. And now it's big damn hero time. It's big damn hero time, but Catra has no fucking idea. 
Oh my god. Nobody does. Catra calls out after them. As far as Catra knows, they're still trying to kidnap her. Oh, I know. So they poof out and say, what are you doing? Why did you save me? And this is, so Glimmer says, we need you. We mm-hmm. need She-Ra. This mm-hmm. is, once again, Glimmer acknowledging that they are one and the same. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And apologizing. I was a jerk. It was stupid. And you could have saved us. I messed up. All right, Glimmer. I forgive you, Glimmer. Mm-hmm. And here's the sword. Time for Avatar Shira. Avatar Shira shows up. Holy shit. And this is her first full transformation on camera. Yep. You know, with the full, I don't know how to, what to call it. You know, it's like the gratuitous, the whole gratuitous transformation. Oh, Jenny, the transformation sequence. Let's talk about transformation sequences because this is also extremely important for the genre. Oh, absolutely. So um, as we were mentioning before, um, She-Ra takes uh, a lot of influences from a lot of different kinds of animation. Uh, One of the very, very readable ones is uh, anime. The character design is absolutely influenced by anime. The theme song, as I mentioned before. Many, many scenes in the series, and we're going to be pointing that out, are drawn explicitly shot for shot from animes. Interesting. Yep. And this one in particular is so important. One of Shira's major influences is the genre of the magical girl anime. Definitely. So the magical girl anime, think of Sailor Moon. Of course. Ordinary girl, or is she, actually turns into fantastic magical girl with superpowers that can save the world, etc., etc. There are obviously, you know, different tropes that wrap in and create the genre, but for our, our intents and purposes, this is where it is. One of the important visual tropes in a magical core anime is the transformation sequence. When mm. you watch our protagonist, you watch our human-coded protagonist, you know, mild-mannered, uh, mild-mannered Usagi, or, you know, Adora, transform through a, you know, uh, it's usually what, like a 10 second, five to 10 second um, animated sequence where you see their bodies transforming magically. They're not going into a phone booth and ripping off the Clark Kent. Right. They are being physically transformed in front of the audience Mm -hmm. from an unseen force. So in this case, we have the transformation sequence and it always has its own theme song. It focuses on very specific parts of the body Mm -hmm. that are then transformed. You know, it usually starts with the bottom of the body and moves up. It involves having a, um, a trigger word or a call. Mm-hmm. Uh, moon prison power makeup. Or for the honor of Grayskull, which kicks off the transformation. There's so much glowing, so much glowing. And you see the process of the transformation. And then you see the awesome power stance at the end. The power stance that she has doesn't hold space. It takes up space. Yeah, that is well put. Her feet are square with her shoulders. Fuck yeah. You see her holding her her sword aloft. Mm -hmm. You know, there is... Her big dick. I'm sorry. No, I had to say no, it. no, dude. It's a it's, it's a sword. There is no way to not interpret a sword as a phallus. Like, well, I have thought before that this sword is a gender non-conforming phallus because, in addition to the phallus that is the sword, it also, if you look at the base of it, it has you know like a little flowering labia coming off the sides, and it has a giant clit at the center. It does. That glows. It's the glowing magical clit that is kind of like the heart of everything. It's the most lesbian thing I've heard in the past 10 minutes. Well, thank you. I try. <laughs> so it is It is a phallus, and it is also um, a yonic symbol. Both. Ah, it is the unity. Yes, 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 yes. So it's a gender non-conforming sword. Aww. Which I love. Yeah, this transformation, though, again, is like really intense. Not every transformation leaves her in this ultra powerful avatar state. You know, she's, her hair is floating. Her eyes are glowing. She's surrounded yep. by golden light and mystical music. She has this unearthly calm. Um, she's embodying that archetypal energy. So when Bo and Glimmer see, first encounter She-Ra, they see Adora turning into She-Ra. Yes. Katra sees the transformation. It's the D transformation. Yes. Bo and Glimmer see uh, Adora's transformation into her destiny. Yes. Right? Into the future of, of her trajectory, into into who she is. Yes. Katra sees who she is becoming, going back to who she was. So Katra only sees Adora through this framing as who Adora was. Mm-hmm. That's deep. And sweet baby Katra's... betrayal and then anger at first it's just blank shock and they're just staring into each other's eyes and they're both 
just completely shocked. Yeah. And they can't they can't absorb what it, this means for them as a them. Yep. Oh. And it's heartbreaking. Um and the way and even before we move on, the way Adora says Katra with such longing and such regret. Yeah, she calls out after her like I I don't I don't know. And Katra recedes into the fire and the shadows. Yes. And then we all cry forever. Oh. They have so much to unpack. Oh my god. And so now Adora at the end of this episode has officially turned against the horde. Yep. The best friend squad has officially been dubbed. Yep. And the journey Bo. begins for realsies. Yes, Bo dubs them. And P.S., whose horse was this? <laughs> whose horse was this? Hey, Jenny, what did we learn today? We have learned never to underestimate the power of a lesbian breakup to escalate a planetary war. Shit, that's real. Well, folks, if you like what you heard and you want to join in on more gay screaming or perhaps comment on the power of the lesbian breakup, you can like and follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also email us at heyadoracast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at heyadoracast. I've been making Spotify playlists for each episode. This week's is a double episode playlist, The Sword, featuring classic 80s songs, covers of your favorite 80s artists, and contemporary queer pop songs. It's available on Spotify right now, and you can find the link in the show notes or by visiting our site at heyadora.gay. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time for episode three, Raz. Fuck yeah, Raz! Fuck yeah, Raz! And remember, queer joy is radical. And queer love saves the universe!